Being a dad isn't always easy, but it's the best thing I ever did. I'm constantly improving myself to be the best dad I can be through fitness, nutrition, mindset, and lifestyle. As fathers, we pass on many things to our children, such as our mindset, our habits, our attitude, and what we've learned along the way. Each of these will shape who our children are and who they will become. The Warrior Dad's mission is to help you become the healthiest version of yourself, to hone your edge, and to live with purpose. My name is Jim Bartomey, and this is the Warrior Dads Podcast. As Warrior Dads, we got to tackle a lot of things, but tackling low testosterone levels should definitely not be one of them. Uh, we need to keep our testosterone at peak levels, and that is absolutely crucial for all of us. So I'm sure you know all the horrible things associated with low T levels. If you don't, it's definitely not pretty. Uh, it's Google search away. But unfortunately, testosterone levels in men have been consistently decreasing over the last two decades. And it's actually one of the biggest conversations I have to have when working with men, which is why I decided to create the Warrior Dads Testosterone Booster Guide and Checklist. It's a free download. And all you have to do is go to checklist.warriordads.com. Uh, just download it, start, start implementing it, and start to feel the difference. So again, go to checklist.warriordads.com and get your free copy now. Hey guys, thanks for tuning back in for another episode of the Warrior Dads podcast. Today I have Matt Kubler uh, joining me today, and so I'm really excited to get him on. I met Matt through a uh, mutual friend of ours, and uh, really excited for him to share his story and what he's doing. Uh, a lot about leadership uh, today which is something really, really lacking in, in my opinion and a lot of other people's opinion out there. Um, so I, I hope you really enjoy this episode because I've talked to Matt on a couple of occasions now and just great guy, very knowledgeable, extremely smart. Uh, so really blessed to have him on the show. So Matt is a husband, a father, an active Pennsylvania police officer, a business owner, and an Army veteran where he served four years as an intelligence analyst. Matt has always lived a life of sacrifice and dedication to others and has devoted his life to helping others through both his professional and personal life. One of those ways is by donating his time speaking to teens and young adults about the importance of leadership in their lives. Matt offers public speaking, mentorship, and leadership consulting services all while serving his community as a police officer and running his gym max out and being the co-founder of E4 Strength. Matt, thanks so much for coming on the Warrior Dads podcast. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it, man. I'm glad we were able to make this happen. Yeah, likewise. Um, so I really just want to get right into it. Just, you know, for anybody that doesn't know who you are, uh, you, uh, you have a lot of information, of course, on your website, which we'll talk about a little later on, but just give people a brief intro to you. Um, you know, what, what really led you to the point of, of where you're at today? Ugh. How long's your podcast? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it, you know, I'm, I'm not any different than anyone else. Everybody's got a journey and a story, but you know, I just happened to, to be able to, to get in front of people and share mine, which is uh, a gift and a blessing. You know, my mom told me once when I, when I decided to, to write a book, I said, mom, I'm not sure I'm qualified to write a book. And she said, well, everyone has a story to tell, but not everyone can tell a story. And she goes, I believe you're a storyteller. Tell yours. So that kind of, you know, it sticks in my head all the time when I, when I get in front of a group of people where I'm, I'm doing my podcast and interviewing somebody. So that's kind of the, the type of person I am. I like to, I like to tell stories and share stories and, and inspire people and all that. So yeah. when did she tell you that? Um, How old were you? 
I was actually, uh, well, it's kind of a convoluted story, but it, it happened. I had a moment um, where I ended up writing 26,000 words and I'll share that shortly. And I, I called my mom and I said, I, I wrote these words and I, I don't know what to do with it. And she said, you write a book. And I said, well, I don't know if I'm qualified to write a book. Mom, I hadn't read one since ninth grade. I literally, this is no lie. So I, I wrote my book. Um, I published it in 2006. So this was probably around 2002 when I had this conversation with my mom. So from ninth grade, which would have been 1985 until 2002, I read one book cover to cover and that was Animal Farm. Um, and everything else in my life, every other book we, I had to do or read in school, I read the first couple pages of each chapter, the front and back dust cover, and pretty much you know, BS my way through the entire thing because I was a smoke and mirrors kid. I was able to utilize my, my intellect to my advantage. I didn't have to put in the work. I, I could smoke and mirror everything. So we'll go back a little bit. So that, it, and that's a big yeah. part of, of understanding my evolution is, is understanding how I went from a smoke and mirrors kid to a, a process driven adult, which is completely the opposite. So um, growing up, you know, I'm 48, going to be 49 um, in April. And you know, I'm from Pottstown. I grew up in town and, you know, my dad left when I was nine months old. I had an older brother, Andy, who was uh, two and a half years, almost three years older than me. And, you know, essentially is my mom, me and my brother for, for the first 12 years of my life. And my mom worked three jobs. She was that quintessential uh, do whatever it takes type mom to make sure her boys were, were cared for and safe and had a roof over their head and food on the table. But, you know, we had public assistance. We lived in, um, Section 8 housing, which wasn't a thing then, but that's what it was. It was um, low-income housing. And uh, yeah, we had welfare and WIC and all the other government services helping us, which, you know, without that, we wouldn't have probably survived. But um, I did uh, – I'd say that, you know, it's, it's everybody's got that picture-painting ability of, wow, down-and-out type family. But the reality was we had a lot of love in our house. So it didn't feel like – even though we knew we were poor – we didn't feel like we were unhappy being poor because <laughs> my mom was just that, that type of person that could make the best out of any situation and always put a positive spin on everything. And, and she was a, a consistent um, giver of love and, and you felt that. So it wasn't like uh, while it was tough that we felt like we were hopeless. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you hear about that a lot is that, you know, you know, I think a lot of times the way people judge, you know, that we were poor is that they don't have a lot of stuff. Maybe they don't have a lot of opportunity or, you know, they're struggling with their bills. But that doesn't mean that, you know, like you said, that you can't be happy. Right. And you do hear that a lot about millionaires, billionaires that are very unhappy, even though they have a lot of stuff, they have all that money. And then you hear about people that have nothing and they're extremely happy. So I think that's great. I, uh, I agree 100 percent. And it's, you know, I've always lived a life. Uh, you know, to this day where money is not a driving force behind my decision-making and it doesn't dictate my, my daily joy. Um, is money great? Yeah. It certainly does help a lot of things, but it's certainly not the, uh, the be all and end all in, in, in how I determine whether or not I'm successful or, or living a happy life. So, um, and that's, I think more of just a, a priority, you know, it's where does it fit into your scale of priorities? And, um, obviously as the, the, the breadwinner for my family i have to go out and earn and and provide enough income for a family to be where i feel we should be but it's certainly not um what my bank account says doesn't determine 
uh, whether or not I feel like I'm, I'm making a contribution to the world or not. So, um, but to go back a little bit and, you know, like I said, I'm 48 and, you know, grew up in pasta. My dad left when I was nine months old and, um, growing up without a dad was tough. Um, he would come and go into our lives. Um, there wasn't a consistent visiting and, and even when he would come and pick us up for a weekend, oftentimes he would take us to my grandmother's, his mother's house and drop us off and then come get us on Sunday and bring us home. Um, wasn't wow. necessarily a visit. It was just a, a removal of us from my mother for a weekend to, for whatever reason he felt he needed to do it. Cause it probably would have been better if he didn't. Cause it, it was very clear to me and my brother that he didn't care and that we weren't a priority. And, uh, while I learned a lot about love and unconditional love and hard work and uh, perseverance and all that from my mom, I, I didn't get the male influence um, in the early parts of my life um, because my dad was so random in his connectivity with us. So, and I, I noticed that was missing. Like it wasn't, um, wasn't something that I had to figure out. It was very apparent that I, I was missing that. And so was my brother. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, my, my brother, was autistic before there was autism. Um, back in the 1970s, he was considered mentally retarded, even though he wasn't, by today's standards, mentally retarded. He had autism, but he was a high-functioning autistic um, boy with a severe stutter. So it was, um, it was a tough environment to be my brother's brother, but it was even more tough for my brother to be who he was um, growing up in, in low-income housing and not having the benefits of at least all the nice things that other kids had. Um, so when you're poor and you, you have a, a brother who was um, learning disabled and, and had a, a very um, severe stutter, like the worst stutter you've probably ever heard, his eyes would roll in his head, his face would contort. Um, and he just couldn't get sense of that. And it was, it was uncomfortable to be around it, but it was 10 times more uncomfortable to have it. So um, while I, I do reference that a lot when I speak, that it was tough to be his brother when he was having episodes I always clarify to say that it wasn't remotely in the same stratosphere of difficult as it was for my brother to be himself. Um, and growing up with my brother was um, a joy, but also a responsibility. I had, um, even though I was two and a half years younger, I was the older brother by proxy. And um, I had to fight every day for him because every day was, was somebody calling him a retard or, or making fun of his stutter or, um, picking on him and, and making him feel upset, which would cause his, you know, with, with autism, he also had hyperactivity disorder. So uh, basically ADHD before it was a thing and his ears would get red and you would just see his face get flushed. And um, when that would happen, stuttering became a hundred times worse. So it, it just compounded things when he would feel that stress. So I would um, do the only thing I knew how to do, which was go up and punch whoever was doing it in the face. And, uh, that wasn't always um, a positive outcome for me. I lost a lot of fights. Um, I learned how to take a punch. I learned how to um, delay my brother's suffering so that he could either get home and, and get away from it or occupy the person who was picking on him long enough to where they forgot about picking on my brother. Um, so it was, it was a, uh, it was a daily 
responsibility of mine to make sure my brother was safe. Mm-hmm. And um, I took that with pride. I, I loved the fact that I, I took care of my brother, but I also, um, I didn't get a chance to have as much of a, a normal childhood because of that. Um, and I felt almost at times that I was, I had to live two different lives because my brother, like I didn't have people come to my house. My brother never had a, and I tell people this story all the time that my brother never had anybody call his house and ask him to come out to play or invite him to a birthday party or sleepover or anything. Never once did I ever um, see that happen, but it also affected me because I didn't invite people to our house for sleepovers or birthday parties or anything like that because of, I didn't want the awkwardness of my brother to be involved in my relationship with people. Does that make sense? Yeah, it was. And it was, I, I felt guilty about it, but then I also felt like I, like I was almost helping him because I didn't put him in a position, but maybe I wasn't, you know, it was like this conflict I had in my head all the time as a kid. Like, why can't I have a normal life where I have friends come over and, and all that? It just, it wasn't that kind of situation in our house. So, um, and that sucked. <laughs> to be honest, with you, it just sucked. It sucked because I, I couldn't I couldn't share my brother, the person that I loved and, and, and admired for his strength and his courage. I couldn't I couldn't bring him out into into the open when we were real young. Um, he went to a different school, so it was like this he was a secret almost. And it's it's amazing to this day where I have, you know, I've been on social media, there's people that I, you know, maybe not have been was not real close with growing up that I'm now engaged with as an adult who um had no idea i had a brother wow really yeah and that's i I feel horrible about that it's it's a uh it's not a proud moment for me to to have that many people not know the most important person that i ever met in my life you know it's it's very difficult to know that that was whether it was intentional or not, was kept a secret. So, because you mentioned he was high functioning, so was he? It was more just the stutter issue, and him being able to deal with other people and crowds and things like that. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was the layers. Um, the, the, I will say the stuttering was the single most um, driving force behind the, the social interaction. Um, simply because he, he couldn't literally couldn't speak a sentence without, um, having the face contorting and all that kind of stuff. So, and I was, and it's, it's when you sit back and get a chance to write a book about your life and you relive your life all over again, as you're writing a book, you get to see all the little like stuff pops back in your head that you'd never really um, paid attention to or thought of, or, or thought you would had remembered until you really started digging into the details of your life. Um, my brother and his stutter, um, I could, I could finish his sentences. Like I knew what he was going to say when he was going to say it every single time. And I didn't know why I knew that or how I knew that. I just remember my mom would always say, stop finishing your brother's sentences. And I'm like, well, he can't do it on his own. So I'm trying to keep him from having to prolong the stuttering. Um, so I just knew what he wanted and he would always go, yeah, that, or thanks, Matt, or like, I always knew. And it wasn't until I became, uh, went in the military and then became a cop, that I realized that I could read people like there was no tomorrow. 
like I could identify minor little micro changes in their facial expressions. Like I saw everything. It was almost like, a, remember the movie, A Beautiful Mind, when you would see numbers in the air and stuff like that. That's the way it feels when I'm interacting with people. I can see everything. And I think it's because of growing up with my brother and being able to sense the slightest changes in his stress level and, and whether or not he was happy or sad or angry or whatever, I could sense all those things. And I could pretty much figure out based on where we were in a conversation, what he needed to get out. Hmm. And uh, that's the single greatest gift my brother ever gave me is, and, and I, you would have not, had you not gone back and relived all that, put those things together to figure out that's how I became good at that. And uh, it's amazing um, that at 48 years old, the gifts that my brother gave me are being revealed every, every year. Like I see a new thing that I learned from my experiences with my brother or sharing my brother's story through the book or whatever. So um, we went on a little bit of a tangent there, but it's my brother was, while he was a secret was so influential in my life. And it wasn't until we got a little bit older, um, when he became a little bit more uh, socially um, less awkward, um, probably when I was like 13 or 14 years old, when he was probably 16 years old, um, is when he started to have this a little bit more of a, I don't want to say normal, but his relationship with me and his relationship with people became less awkward and a little bit more traditional for a teenage boy. And he started to hang out and go to like basketball games and football games. Even though we went to a different school, there was a select group of people who knew my brother. Um, and to this day are still um, very close to me. And, um, but there's not a whole lot of people in my life growing up that knew who Andy was. Mm-hmm. And, and that's. Um, in your I, life. Cause I in did my read, life. cause I did read about the story. Um, at his funeral. Yeah. Or, you know, when, when he passed and how many people, strangers showed up. And that's the, that's the dichotomy of this whole thing. You know, my mom, um, did her very best, um, and is still the, the greatest human being that I know, um, to provide for me and my brother and to give us love and, and the ability to have compassion and empathy for other people and all that kind of stuff. And, um, she remarried my stepfather. She remarried and married my stepfather when I was 12 and, and my relationship with my stepfather was not good um, because I was so conflicted over why my biological father didn't want to have a relationship with us that I couldn't allow myself to have a relationship with my stepdad. Mm-hmm. And, and we had a, a thing going on in our family with my mom and my brother and I, where we could pretty much say what we needed to say, even if it involved cursing, because as long as we weren't cursing at each other, that was kind of the rule. That was like the ground rule. You couldn't cross that line. And so if I dropped an F-bomb and said, I really hate my fucking dad right now, it, she let me say that and it was okay. It wasn't like I was admonished for dropping an F-bomb because it was in the moment how I felt. I just couldn't you know, curse at my mom, obviously. But when my stepdad came in, he was an authoritarian and a disciplinary and he shut that shit down. <laughs> like there was no more of that. So everything that was our normal way of communicating changed. Mm-hmm. And and I resented him for it. And I, I didn't begin to really appreciate the value of my stepfather in my life until I got um, out of the army. So it was like 22, 23 years old by the time I really started to um, appreciate him and what he had done in my life and my as far as being a husband to my mom and a provider for our family. So uh, but my my brother and I never really sort of gelled with my stepdad and 
um, when my brother passed on July 12th, 1989 in a car accident, my mom and stepfather were away uh, on vacation. Uh, July 12th. Yeah, July 12th, 1989. That's my birthday. Really? I mean, I'm 1983, but July wow. 12th is my birthday. Wow. That's a little bit freaky. Um, yeah. <laughs> so he, uh, I was working at a, at a pizza shop in Pottstown and I'm, I'm not going to lie. But, so we went away for a week on vacation with my mom, stepped down, down, down to Rehoboth and then they stayed down and then for another week. And, and my brother was staying with my grandmother and I was staying with friends and I was already, you know, and this was July and I was leaving for the army in August. So I'd already begun my mental checkout of, of being a, a member of my family. I just wanted to go. And, uh, because of the stress I was having with my stepdad and the, we were constantly butting heads and, um, my brother the same way. And, uh, I just remember that the day that he died and I got the phone call from my biological father of all people, um, because it was before cell phones and, um, the only my my brother in his wallet had numbers for my my biological father's house and then our home was on written on a piece of paper and obviously my mom and stepdad weren't home they were away so my they got a hold of my dad and uh and he called to tell me that Andy had been in an accident and that he was in surgery and uh so I went to my friend's house that night and uh was a wreck and my mom called me that night and she was sobbing on the phone and all I could say was I know and neither of us were really saying words. We were just, I can't believe it. Oh my God. Like that kind of stuff. And I just kept saying, I know. And I told her I would, I would be home tomorrow that I wasn't in any shape to drive. So unbeknownst to me, my mom was actually calling to tell me that I, that my brother had died. And I, at, at that point was just th- thought she was telling me about the accident. So I went to bed thinking my brother was still alive. And I woke up the next morning and I went to work at the, sh- the pizza shop also had a breakfast um, in the morning and I went to work and my mom shows up and looked at me like I was insane. And she's like, what are you doing here? I said, well, there's nothing I can do for Andy at home. I said, I, I just wanted to get my mind clear and, and just be busy. And she said, you don't know. And I just looked at her and that's when I realized that he had, he had passed and the rest was a blur. And I, 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 I lost my mind a little bit and um, the next week was a blur. I had thought about killing myself and made that known to my mom. And so they take me to a psychologist and they put me on some medicines to sort of calm my nerves. And, um, but I remember at my brother's funeral and I was, and the weird thing is my stepdad and looking back on it now, I, I look at it as the most courageous thing I've ever witnessed. But at the time, because of my, issues I was having with my stepdad and the fact that we weren't seeing eye to eye or getting along that he was the one that my stepdad was a pastor and he was the one who did the service for my brother. And I was just so angry at him for like, how can you stand up there as the pastor of of this church and bury your stepson? You should be sitting with us grieving. And that's all I felt at the time. And I just remember being angry, but I remember while I was angry, I was sitting in the church and I wasn't really paying attention to my stepdad and what he was saying because I was just so like offended, I guess was the word that he would be the one to, to give my, my brother's eulogy and, and, and do the service. But I'm looking around the church and I'm thinking, who the hell are all these people? 
like my family is pretty fractured. There's not a whole lot of, like, I don't have a, a shit ton of cousins or aunts or uncles. It's, we're not, we weren't a very close family. And, and even if we were close, there's just not that many of them, but there was probably a thousand people at the church. And I just kept thinking to myself, like, who are all these people? And it wasn't until much later where I realized who they were. My, my brother, every summer um, in high school, um, a very good found Christy. I don't know if you read any parts of, of the book at all, but Christy and Billy and, and Aunt Arlene were kind of like family to us. And we lived together multiple times throughout the first 12 years of my life. And we were pretty much two single moms and four kids. Um, well, Christy was dating a guy whose dad ran a camp. And it was a, a Methodist camp. And my brother, um, Christy, thought it would be a good idea for my brother to go to camp in the summer and do some you know, working, essentially cutting grass and, and things like that. So for four years, he went every summer. He would leave in you know June and come back in August to this camp. And so I didn't, I didn't know anybody at the camp. I didn't go to the camp. I didn't attend the camp. So I didn't really know anything about that part of my brother's life. I just knew that he really enjoyed it and and that he would come back happier. Um, but I realized much later that all the people that came to my brother's funeral, the people that he had met along the way in those four years at camp. And after I started writing the book, I started to you know, find out about all these stories about my brother from these people that knew him at the camp. And it was a different person that I grew up with. The person I knew was, was a victim, was needed to be protected, needed to have um, someone looking out for him all the time. The person they knew was this uh, involved, engaged, loving, outgoing, didn't worry about his stutter, just an amazing person who thrived at this camp. And, and those were the people that were there that day to celebrate my brother. And as I got older and I began to appreciate the a, the, the, the courage that my stepfather showed in being able to stand up in front of a church while he was grieving for the loss of his son. Mm -hmm. At the time, I was that's not how I was seeing it. But looking back on it and being now a mature adult who has the ability to handle his emotions a little bit better, I, I recognized the strength my stepfather showed. And I, I'm so in awe of the fact that my brother, the person that I, I knew had the ability to be so engaging and so outgoing in a place where he felt the safest and that he touched so many lives during those four summers. And for me, that's like a revelation. I spent 13 years after my brother died in a depression, massive depression. Um, looking back on it's PTSD, you know, essentially PTSD is just your brain's inability to cope with a trauma that it wasn't prepared for. And I'd lived my entire life thinking that I, my brother was going to live in my house till I died, <laughs> right? That's, he was just going to be a part of my life. That's just what I envisioned um, of, my, of my life. And when I realized he wasn't going to be there anymore, I just couldn't handle that. And I was angry at God and I was angry at myself for um, letting him die. And um, even though I had no control over it, I still felt some level of responsibility. And uh, those 13 years were the darkest periods of my life because I couldn't love I couldn't feel joy. I couldn't express happiness. So how um, did it affect you while you were deployed? Um, Cause you left right in the, the, yeah, the right. next month. Yeah. 
So I, when you don't, I have, and I said earlier, I'm a smoke and mirrors guy. I can adapt to just about anything and make it work, even if it's not natural, even if it's not real, even if it's not what I want, I can make things work. And I think I just sort of adapt it. And I put those feelings of, of sorrow and sadness away. And I just sort of became this different version of me. One that didn't have to have those, those feelings um, on a continuous basis. They were there every day. Um, they came out at night, usually, um, when I laid in my bed. And, and I, I found alcohol <laughs> um, and, and found out that that was a really good way of not think, thinking or feeling is if I just drank, um, I engaged in reckless behaviors and, uh, didn't care what the consequence was physically to me. Um, even when I got out of the military, became a cop, you know, I, I was the first person to go into a, a dangerous environment, uh, and didn't care. I ran in, I remember my first year on the job, I went into a house with a guy who had his wife hostage and I was ready to, to either get killed or kill him. I didn't care. And right. I, I killed himself right in front of me. Um, and I didn't, re I remember not feeling anything. Like I was like, yeah, whatever, dude. I was, I, I was going to do it or you were. Like I, I didn't have any logical, emotional reaction to things. Mm -hmm. um, everything was just sort of very uh, black or white. And uh, even, you know, I met my wife and my wife's beautiful amazing and i remember thinking she's beautiful and amazing and in my head i loved her like she's the one i want to spend the rest of my life with but my heart i couldn't give that to her like i was everything i was doing was smoke and mirrors and i, I use that a lot because that's really what it was it was just um i could fake it till i made it and and i just kind of i was hoping maybe that i would get out of whatever funk it is and i knew the funk i was in it wasn't a secret i wasn't confused by it i knew why i was feeling that way and then I, you know, we got pregnant and had my daughter three months after we got married, we got pregnant. And so nine months later, actually she was premature. So um, like eight and a half months, seven and a half months later, we had a baby. And I remember when she was born and I looked at her and I, I felt the responsibility of as being a father, but I didn't feel that, that heart connection. And I thought that was really sad and, and completely messed up. Yeah. And I remember calling my best friend and I said, listen, I think I'm broken. He goes, what do you mean? I said, I'm not feeling anything for my, my child. Like I don't have that joy in my heart. I, I have a responsibility. Like this is part of my job now to take care of her, but I didn't have that. You know, everybody talks about, it. Oh my God, dear new, newborn baby, this overwhelming emotion. And, and I just didn't have that. And, and it, it weighed on me. And uh, it, it affected our marriage. Um, I wasn't a, a very um, patient husband. I wasn't a very patient father. Um, I did all the things I was supposed to do. The, the fatherly checklist, I, you know, I provided, I protected, I, you know, all the things I was supposed to do. But I didn't, I didn't give the love and joy and, 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 and all that to, to my wife and child. And, uh, and I regret that deeply, but I also know that had I not gone through that, I wouldn't be where I am today. Um, and I wished I could have gotten out of that cycle earlier of depression, but I, I just couldn't figure a way out of it. And uh, it wasn't. When, a, when did you break out of it? Well, 
I talked about in the very beginning when we talked about, you know, when my mom say that, you know, not everybody can, everybody has a story to tell, but not everybody can tell a story. Well, that's kind of how this came to be. So um, 9-11 happens and I, I get the crazy idea to become a, a United States federal air marshal. Um, 9-12, I saw President Bush came on the, on the TV and said he was reenacting the Sky Marshal program and that became the United States Federal Air Marshal program very quickly under the FAA. And they had this massive hiring wave. And I was one of the first ones hired in that, in that wave. And my wife said, absolutely not. You're not taking that job. And I said, well, I have to. And my wife, if nothing, she's loyal and she ride or dies, right? She's one of those kind of women. She's, she's with me for life. And I think she saw my potential and what I could become. And that's why she stayed because I honestly didn't give her too many reasons to stay. Um, I wasn't, I didn't, you know, didn't abuse her. I wasn't a philanderer. I didn't do any of those things. I just wasn't present in our relationship for a long time. Uh And uh, so I took the job and I left for four and a half months to the middle of nowhere in New Mexico to go train with Delta force and Navy seals and um, got the best training of my life and came back. And uh, right before I got the job, we found out we were pregnant again. And so she was pregnant when I went away for those four and a half months and I came back and we had our son, Andrew in September of 2012. And I named him after my brother and uh, I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't want to have another kid because I was deathly afraid that I was just going to repeat the cycle again, that I wasn't going to be able to, to be present for my kid. Uh And, uh, did you feel anything? I did. So it, it was weird. It wasn't, it wasn't what, I thought it would be. I thought I was just going to go through the same process again that I did with Becca. Um, but what I felt was like, it was almost like I saw something familiar when he was born. Like I, like I recognized him. It wasn't love. It wasn't like this euphoria, but it was like, I know you. Hmm. And, and that was like, that stuck in my head. Like, is this my, like, am I, maybe I'm thinking is my brother revealing himself to me or something, you know, like weird stuff like that. But it, my son just looked familiar. And a few months after he was born, um, we had family over and my grandmother, who's my stepfather's mom, um, came over as, as part of this group of people that came and she gave me a gift. Now, you know, when you have a new baby, rarely does the dad really involved in the gift receiving, right? It's usually right. onesies and, and stuff like that, you know, diapers and, and whatever. Yeah. So usually it's the guys going to watch TV or stand in the kitchen and talk about whatever nonsense we talk about. But uh, my grandmother requested that I be in the room during the gifts. And so she hands me this box and I, I open it and inside of it is a quilt. And at zero point in time in my life, have I ever been a quilt guy? So I kind of assumed that it was a mistake. So I put it back in a box and I handed it back to her. And I said, man, I'm pretty sure this is probably for Lauren. She goes, no. And my, my grand, like there's three women in my life. I'm afraid of my wife, my mother, and my grandmother. And when they look at you, you kind of know when you're in trouble. <laughs> and I'd had that look many times in my life. And she looked at me, she goes, just look at it. And I went, okay. So I take it out of the box and I hold it up and I'm looking at it and there's yellows and whites and um, patterns. There's a, like a, a paisley blue pattern and two teddy bears. And one of the teddy bears at the top had uh, Andy stitched in the uh, like a brown and gold stitching and that that was the thing that triggered me and that because i named my son andrew 
Mm-hmm. And Andy's reserved for my brother. And when I saw the Andy, I'm like, oh, my God, that was his work shirt. The st- his name on his work, like his his uh, oh. his shirt. And then then all of a sudden, all the other colors and pattern became to, like I pictured my brother in every single piece of clothing that was made into this quilt. And what had happened was the week that my brother was staying with my grandmother when he died, when my mom stepped out on vacation, she had kept all his clothes for 13 years and in the attic in like a, a plastic bag. And for whatever reason, and I don't know why now and not when my daughter was born that she decided it was time to hand me or get this quilt made, but she handed me a piece, a tangible piece of my brother that I could, I could feel and, and smell and, and I could smell my brother in the clothes. And, um, it was the most overwhelmingly powerful emotional moment of my life. I just had this wave and I'm starting to <laughs> choke up saying it. I had this wave of, of just release, like take over my body. And I felt this like, um, like burden was, was being re- removed from me. And, and I just held that, that quilt. And after everybody left, I went down to my office in the basement and I took the quilt down and it was like nine o'clock at night. And I sat there and I cried for like an hour. And, and all of a sudden I said, oh, I got to write some memories down. And that, as growing up, I was always, when I was sad, I would write poetry or a song or, um, or whatever. I, and that's so writing was kind of like my outlet. And I sat down and I wrote memories of my brother. And every time I would have a memory done, I would save it into a file. And they just kept coming. It was like, it was like a motion picture in my head of memories. And I just kept writing about them. And I came up the next morning at seven 30 in the morning after writing all night long with 26,000 words of memories of my brother. Now, that's a lot of words. <laughs> yeah. My book is 68,000 words and it's 160 pages or whatever. And so I wrote a fourth of a book essentially, um, in one night and it, when I opened the door and that this was the, the part when I kind of knew things were going to be okay. And so I opened up my basement door and, and the kitchen window faces the East, um, and the sunlight was coming through the window and it, it literally comes right through the, the basement door when you open it. And it was the first time in, a, in forever. I don't even know if I ever noticed it since living in that house that the sun came through that window and I saw the light coming in and I saw every ray of color in that light. Like it was almost like a rainbow within the light and I could see the flecks of dust and everything. And I just remember staring at it going, how have I not seen that? Like, why am I not aware that this is a morning occurrence every day in my house? Like, that is so right. beautiful. And I just felt this warmth. And I told my wife that morning, I said, I'm, I'm going to be okay. She's like, what do you mean? I said, I'm, I'm going to be okay. And that how was much, the, How much lighter did you feel after that? My heart felt, um, I wouldn't say everything was out. Like, the, I didn't release all that guilt, but I felt like there was hope and, and that I had an ability to process what happened. And I think the thing I, I really did that day was I forgave God. And, uh, cause I was angry at God for taking my brother and I was angry for being left alone 
that's what I felt. I felt alone. And uh, that day I, I forgave God. And that sort of um, changed things in my life. Because hmm. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't angry. And, and I, you know, that was 2002. So in the 17 years since, I've realized how powerful an emotion anger is. And how it can blind you to the greatness and the things that are in your life that should be bringing you joy, even though um, you, know, you go through things in life and, and you're going to hit trials and tribulations throughout your life, how you react to them and, and how you allow emotions to overtake your, your thought processes is very powerful. And that was the transformational moment for me to where I now was able to sort of see who I was and what I had been doing and where I'd screwed up and how I could make things begin to make things better. Wow. That's quite a story. Oh yeah. That's... Trust me. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's the one that, and I, I tell people this, I don't speak publicly about my brother because I want to be a public speaker. Mm -hmm. I speak about my brother because I want people to understand how amazingly important he was in my life. And when I go on a stage and I share that story, I just shared, I hundred percent end up crying. And it's because I literally go back and relive it every time. And if, people ask me why after, you know, my brother's been dead for 30 years. How is it that I'm still that emotionally attached to my brother? And I say, it, the day that I'm not is the day I don't want to live anymore. I feel like it's a very odd question. Personally, I, I just, as soon like, as you, as soon as you said that question out loud, my eyebrows just completely went down and I'm like thinking to myself, what? Cause everybody's who, who, like, who would ask that? I don't, I would never even think. To ask that question. It gets asked often. Really? How am I still so emotionally attached to my brother? And are people just emotional robots? I don't get that. Like how it's it's about uh, I mean, I don't know, honoring your brother, getting on the stage and talking and doing all the things that you do. You're honoring your brother and keeping his spirit alive. I think people are afraid of feeling. Like I I look forward to every opportunity I get to relive that moment, even the hardest moments again, mm -hmm. because it reminds me of um, many things. Number one, it reminds me of the love I shared with my brother. It reminds me of the love I didn't share for 13 years. Um, it reminds me of the gift of, of having the ability to um, share my brother with the world. You know, I, like I told you before, he was a secret for a long time mm -hmm. and he's not a secret anymore. So he's got friends. <laughs> he's got people that love him that never met him. There are people that named their kids after my brother. They built a gymnasium at this camp and named it after my brother. They, there's so many honoring moments of my brother that happened the day that he died and are continuing to happen 30 years later. 
And to me, that's my mission in life is to um, live a life that he would be proud of. Number one, number two is to make sure that everybody knew my brother the way that I knew him. And then hopefully the journey that I took and the things that I went through after his death and how I, I want to make sure that they don't repeat the things that I did, that if maybe my story will help somebody. Mm -hmm. And when I talk to kids, kids don't always recognize or, or don't get to know what an adult went through and how it can relate to them. And where I found that my strengths are is, is in helping kids recognize that um, what they're going through isn't is personal to them, but they're not the only one who's ever gone through it. And that I can help them through my experiences of sharing my story and having them read the book or, or whatever uh, mechanism I use to help them understand that, just because you hit a bump in the road and mine just happened the last 13 years, that life doesn't end. And that I've actually lived a more beneficial and fruitful and a meaningful life for the last 17 years than I did the first, you know, 31 years of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I find my joy is being able to, whether it's civic groups or church groups or, or stages or, or whatever, I get a chance to, to share my heart so that people understand that when I'm speaking, I'm speaking from a place of, of true passion and, and compassion. Yeah. When was it that you realized that all of this can, you know, how did this translate into leadership for you at what point? And then when did you realize you're like, you know what, I can, I, was, I can really do this, like pass this on. I was always a natural leader. Um, growing up, I was always, um, not always a positive leader, but I was always a natural leader. Um, I would lead people down the wrong road too at times. I was not always making the smartest choices, <laughs> but I had an, an ability to get people to follow. Um, and I think that's just because I had a lot of responsibility on my plate from a very young age. Um, and I own that responsibility and, and that ownership is the key to being a good leader. Um, leading is not an action of telling people what to do and ensuring that they do it. Leadership is an, is a, uh, an ownership of responsibility that um, you understand means that you're responsible for other people's outcomes. And, and that's where I've, I've always thrived is in understanding what my decisions or what my leadership um, decisions would are doing to help other people achieve or not achieve success. And once I, um, I did that naturally with smoke and mirrors, as I talked about before, I would, when I was in the military, I was a, a very good leader only in areas that I felt, um, the most confident in. I didn't really go outside of my comfort zone because it was, I could do it easily and without having a lot of thought or, or effort involved. Um, when I got out of the military and became a cop, I, I stayed in my wheelhouse. I, I did a lot of, um, aggressively heroic type things um, and survived, which then gave me some level of credibility as this, you know, great cop. And um, while it was not necessarily 
driven from a place of, of um, logical thinking. <laughs> it, it served its purpose. Um, and it wasn't until after I, you know, I, I had the moment where I wrote, wrote the words and, and allowed myself to forgive God that I start to begin to start to see things again. Like I did that, the light coming through the window and it wasn't once I started to recognize that there's things that I hadn't been paying attention to, I really started to work on being more present in every aspect of my life. And when I did that, I saw all the opportunities that had been in my life that I wasn't paying attention to. And I, I wrote in my book that, you know, once I let go of the anger, um, doors began to open for me. And I was a hundred percent sure that my brother's hand was on that door now before mine was helping me go through it. And I believe in that. I believe that there is, um, there's a guiding force behind what I'm doing that my life and my journey and, and however long I'm put on this earth for has a, has a significant purpose. And I think going back and looking at why I was so angry about my brother's passing is because I felt like he didn't get a chance to live. Like he was just starting to come into his own and in, in the, the person that I knew, like he was just starting to, you know, he, he got his driver's license and, um, which he to this day probably would not be allowed to get his driver's license, but he got his driver's license. He was a very good driver. He was an amazing driver. He was the most conscientious, safe driver there was, and he took care of his car like it was gold. Um, and he died because of a medical emergency. I'm pretty sure of what happened. He was unconscious before the accident, so it's not like he made a mistake or or was uh, unsafe or or his learning disability contributed in any way because it didn't. Um, witnesses say he was slumped over. Um, on the, the driver's side window um, before the accident. So, but I realized that after speaking to all these people um, who knew my brother in the summers at the camp and the, the person that they described, my brother lived probably one of the most meaning 21 years anyone has ever lived. Meaningful, right? And, and I, when I recognized that he did actually live, I, I wasn't nearly as angry anymore over the fact that he died. And I stopped asking why to God instead said, thank you for allowing me to have my brother for 21 years. Um, well, 18 years of my life, his 21 years. And, and when I took the anger and the feeling of loss and turned it into a, a feeling of a gift, it really changed my perspective that I was blessed to have my brother. And that I'm the only person to have ever said that he was my brother. And, and that's a special title. And, and I'm thankful for the, the lessons that I've learned since his passing from him um, about love, about um, forgiveness, about um, being completely open and honest with my emotions. My brother hid nothing. Like there was no way he could hide anything. He was the worst liar on the planet and his heart was pure <laughs> and he never, um, he never spent a day of his life hating other people or being angry at other people for what they did to him. He literally could forgive anyone of any transgression and that to me is a, a very rare trait. Um, 
And I try to, to, to employ that in my own life. I'm not always successfully, but um, I try to be more empathetic and understanding. I mean, as a police officer, you know, I, I don't get to go into people's houses when everything's great. So and 99% of my life is spent, you know, fixing problems. And um, sometimes you can become numb to the, the, the grind of that. But I, I'm very much more aware of um, not just being in this, what problem is this right now? And how do I get out of this, this situation <laughs> so I can go have a cup of coffee or whatever? It's, it's more about um, trying to understand the depth of the problem and, and maybe being a, a beacon of, of hope for someone who may not feel they have any. Yeah. It sounds like your brother was uh, your greatest teacher. And as you're sitting here talking, I'm thinking to myself, I'm also thinking about your dad and I can't help think that maybe because you think of, you know, why things happen and you try to come up with a reason and maybe you never know exactly why, but you know, maybe it sounds intelligent and you, you go with it. Uh, and I, and I, I'm thinking from being um, absent in your life for so long, meaning your dad and having you step into the role of being your brother's keeper and being so close to him. I wonder if you did have this dad of the year, you know, present dad around, you probably wouldn't have needed to step into that role. No, that's, that's, I never you thought know, of if, that. You, if, if you had, a, if you had a more present dad who your dad was the keeper or, or something like that, right. Because then the, um, the responsibilities would be distributed differently. And so if you had that, and even when you guys did see him, you mentioned that you never really saw him because you just went to your grandmother's house. So it's not like he was trying to be dad of the year when he was around either. So you were still his keeper, even though it was supposed to be on his time. So I just couldn't, I, I don't know. It was just something that came into my mind as you were talking. And I'm like, maybe this is exactly what needed to happen, even though it's, you know, it's, it's of course sad that, you know, you lost them, but then of course that taught you a great, a great lesson as well. And it's just, you know, you think again, why things happen and you try to come up with a reason and you may never know if that's actually the reason, but if it sounds good and it, and it resonates and maybe it's, it's worth using. I, you know? I agree. That's For me, it's like, I looked at my, you know, when you write a book, like I said, my, my book isn't, I didn't have to do any type of research. I lived it. So it, when you relive your life, you start, instead of thinking about all these individual moments that sucked or were great or whatever individually they were, you realize that none of them are individual. They're just a connective piece to the next. And, you know, growing up poor gave me an appreciation for work ethic and work ethic gave me appreciation for um, service and service gave me appreciation for empathy and, and, and compassion, you know, like all these things that I've learned throughout experiences in my life have, have created this version of me and my biological father, who I have not spoken to since 1995. Um, and I don't even know if he's alive or dead. I wrote him a, an apology letter and I said, listen, I, I apologize for not being the best son on the planet. And I forgive you for not being the best father on the planet. And, you know, I'm, I'm the man I am today because of, of your inability to father. And also the fact that you made me, and I'll give you credit for that. You created me. And everything that I've learned along the way 
is a byproduct of that initial moment of taking my first breath. And I'm okay with the fact that you weren't there. And I forgive you for that because I've learned so many things along the way that have built me into the man I am today. And I've had men, uh, my, you know, my, bo- my stepfather is, is one of my greatest um, cheerleaders and, and supporters. And, and we have a great relationship, but it, like I said, it wasn't great at first, um, but I had to mature. I had to grow up and I had to let go of, of a lot of baggage that I was holding on to. And I've had, um, I had a mentor in high school when I was, you know, I'd gotten myself in a little bit of trouble and this police officer arrested me. And um, rather than putting me in the system, he, he decided to take time and try to figure out how to change my course. And uh, to this day, he's still a part of my life. And, you know, I became a cop because of him. And yeah, I've had other male influences in my life that have helped me um, at different stages. And, you know, I may not be the most handy guy. I may not have the the typical male skill sets when it comes to, you know, changing the oil in my car or, you know, any of that, but I can vacuum the shit out of a carpet and clean a bathroom like no tomorrow. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I've, I've learned the value of, of taking what I, my skill set is, my gifts are, you know, my gift in life is being a servant. I will do whatever it takes to help other people. And it's always been, even when I was in my dark periods, I was helping people, but I was just doing it on autopilot. I had, didn't have a purpose or intention behind it. Uh, it was just intrinsically who I am. But now that I, I know that's who I, I am every day and who I will always want to be, I'm more cognizant of, of my daily interactions and how can they be used as impactful moments in not only my life, but somebody else's life. And that's, wow. that's why kids are very important to me because I, I don't have a whole lot of patience for, for fixing broken human beings that are adults um, because there's just way too much um, baggage and garbage to scrape away to get to the truth and then to begin to, to work. Kids are inherently sponges. They want to become better. They want to learn. They want to grow. Um, and it just takes one person with the proper vantage point to help a kid figure out who they are and where they want to be. And, you know, it starts with um, helping a kid figure out what their strengths and weaknesses are. It helps kids understand the, the importance of accountability and responsibility and leadership. And um, kids need structure. They want structure. Kids that have no structure or, um, you know, have everything handed to them are the ones that end up m- most often in, um, in some sort of crisis later on in life because they don't have the tools, they don't have the grit or the resiliency to overcome or, or, or make it through the tough periods. And I think that's where my value comes in because I, I had to go through all that. Right. So you shared something in um, under the name of Max Out because that's one of your businesses, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Max Out is the, the local gym that you, that you run. Mm-hmm. And under that name, you gave a talk which completely ties into everything that you're just saying. Uh, you gave a talk to the high school um, about bullying a number of years ago. And in the beginning of that talk, you said that you were going to, you know, you wanted the kids, you kind of opened it as, you know, I want you guys to take away something. And this is really going to be about leadership because you feel like that's a big thing that's lacking. And you wanted to have those kids take away 
um, something to help them learn about leadership. So for any of the listeners out there who have kids who want to, who maybe are completely resonating with your story or just want to have that one tip that they can teach to their kids or to pass on to somebody else about leadership, what's that one or what's one or two things that you like to mention in your talks and say, this is what I want you guys to walk away with to help you to become better leaders. I think um, specifically with the bullying epidemic and it's, you know, it's, it's been around since the ages, the dawn of time, right? Um, It may have not always been called bullying. It may have been called something else, but I can tell you that since the 1970s, when my life started, it's been in existence and it's still in existence today. And while I know schools would love to have, less bullying i don't think they the schools themselves are going about the solution from the proper vantage point uh, one of the things i do in my gym um i also i work instead not just helping people who want to get fit get fit but i work with people who have neurological and neuromuscular disease and one of the things i have to do is figure out why is their left arm not working or why is why can't they balance or so i have to go after the the root cause and not just treat the symptom. Um, and that takes a lot of, of reverse engineering and it's no different when it comes to the psychological side of, of the human behavior and bullying is a, um, is a symptom. When a bully takes on somebody, it's a symptom. It's not the cause of why they, they're bullying. It's just a symptom. So figuring out why a kid is bullying is, is important, but even more important is, how do we help the kids who are being bullied no longer have the ramifications of what bullying does to them, the psychological impact it has, the social impact that it has? And I think the single greatest tool that I can give a kid who could potentially be a victim of bullying is to be a strong, confident leader. Bullies inherently will not pick on the ones that have self-confidence and are leaders and have the ability to um, navigate through life a little bit more effectively, knowing that they have strengths, weaknesses, and, and what those are and, and how to minimize the weaknesses and emphasize their strengths, and then learn how to help others do that. People that are doing that every single day are not impacted by the words of a, a weak bully. So, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about all these different processes we can give kid, the kids to help them deal with bullying, you know, tell a teacher, uh, report it to a friend, whatever. They're all um, symptom treaters. They're not giving them a tool that they can utilize to help them grow, not just through this period of time through bullying, but also in life. So I believe that the, the cause and the, the symptom of bullying can be treated and dealt with by creating more leaders, not focusing in on how to fix the bully, but how to reduce the number of potential victims that a bully has to, to impact. And that's leadership. And so you think that's, you think that's easier. So I, I feel like there's, there's a confidence issue f- f- par- partially with the, the lack of leadership, right? Maybe they don't feel like they can do it. Um, almost kind of similar how you felt like you, you didn't know if you were really qualified to, to, you know, write a book um, mm-hmm. back, back in the day. Right. So there's, there's a little level of confidence that needs to be addressed there with the victim. If you want to just place uh, labels on the bully and the victim mm-hmm. of the bullying. And so you have to increase the confidence, but then with the bullying, I feel like there has to be, I feel like there's also a respect issue, uh, respect for other people. And then also not projecting usually what's probably happening at home. If you just kind of be very general with it. And of course there's, you know, specific cases for specific people. Um, but 
I think stereotypically it's the bullying, the bully projecting what they're dealing with at home and their frustrations out onto, like you're saying, weaker people or people that are not good leaders. So I think you, th- you think it's easier to address the victim and, and build the victim up instead of addressing the, the respect issue and, and that from the aspect of the bully. Yeah. Cause it, cause here's the reason why. So um, the, having been a cop for 26 years and been in a, a bazillion broken homes and, and, and situations where I can see where um, the negative environment of a home can impact everything outside of their life. The, the ability to get in and fix that problem requires so much more depth and time and access that may or may not be available to anyone in a school. Um, It's just the depth of which a bully has, has been impacted negatively in their life in the area outside of school where that school doesn't have any impact is, is just probably um, if we're just looking at a numbers game for just looking at, okay, we have 2000 kids. How do we impact the most kids immediately? The most impactful way is to create a, uh, a mechanism by which kids learn how to become leaders. And what I've found the most is when I ask kids to define what a leader is, most kids have no idea. Like they think it's a title. Like what are some of the answers you get? Uh, the president, or you know, like it's it's all titled. <laughs> like That's everybody just... is is given titles as leaders and uh-huh. not understanding the mechanism of what a leader is. So I gave a definition. I created this. Um, whether it's um, thorough enough or not, I don't know. But I think it's the simplistic, most effective way to get kids to understand is a leader is simply somebody who gives of their time, energy, and effort to help someone else find success. That's it. Hmm. That's all a leader is. You can grow that exponentially and, and impact more people. But ultimately what a leader does is just gives with their time, energy, and effort to help someone else find success. And during those talks, I, I give out examples of what does it mean to find success? And I, I'll say, how many of you have um, ever helped a friend um, through a problem? Everybody raised their hand. I said, well, at that moment, you're a leader. I said, how many people have ever saw a kid being bullied and helped the kid get out of that situation and take them to a safe place? Everybody raised their hand. I said, in that moment, you're a leader. I said, and being a leader is something you can do as many times a day as you want without anybody ever criticizing you. (laughs) It is literally the single greatest thing you can do is to help somebody. And if you want to open the door for somebody um, who has their hands full of books, you're a leader at that very moment because you did something for them to help them. And it's, it's the minute you start to recognize that leadership is nothing more than helping other people, then all of a sudden it becomes an addictive drug. Helping people becomes addictive. And when your mindset is in a servant mode versus a receiving mode, um, you see more opportunities. I have kids every day and I tell them to keep a log when I mentor kids and um, we do a, a weekly, biweekly mentoring sessions and I have them write down um, opportunities they either saw and didn't act on or saw and acted on where they could have helped somebody. And it starts off five or six a day, maybe. And as they become more aware of looking for those things, they see 30 to 40. (laughs) And it's, it's amazing when you can get a kid to open their mind up to seeing what's around them, being more present in moments. It gives them this confidence in knowing that they have control over outcomes. And that's what a kid doesn't have at 15 years old is control. 
<laughs> everything's told them what they can and can't do and and rightfully so but when you give the kid the tool that allows them to control outcomes positively so that they someone else feels like you know they've had a better moment in time and you feel better for giving them that moment in time and it's it's an addictive uh, process and and for me my success in mentoring kids has been through creating that mindset in them and it's just a process i take them through so for me that's the key to it all is is if i can give kids the opportunity to um shift their mindset from a because kids live in the moment but they live in a moment and it becomes exponentially bigger than actually what it is like my girlfriend didn't text me back that will screw up their entire day right it's it's <laughs> it's yeah. you've got to give them some level of understanding how to control things in their own mind and in their life yeah and to me that's if you do that bullies won't the, the person they're trying to bully won't have time for that nonsense <laughs> because they're too busy seeking out ways to help people that your nonsense is really not impacting me at all because my mindset has completely changed. Yeah. So as a police officer, as a dad, and as somebody who's just punched the people that were picking on your brother, how, how important do you think it is to, cause I, I, I love, I love all combative, combative sports and um, I'm recovering from a jujitsu injury as I think, you know, and, mm-hmm. Um, in that, in that, uh, journey to leadership and then encouragement, do you ever recommend the victims learn? Because I think it can be achieved. Also leadership can be achieved also in self-defense in taking some kind of self-defense class. Do you ever recommend that as well? Maybe on the side, maybe not in the full room or something like that. But is that, is that something like, again, as a dad, as a police officer, the things that you've seen, how important do you think it is for people to know how to defend themselves if they're ever in situations like that, that can't be de-escalated with words or just by, you know, potentially walking away. Yeah. I think the, there's a, you know, just like in law enforcement, we have the force continuum and um, which dictates what level of force we're allowed to go with mm-hmm. depending on what is being presented to us. And I think with kids, if, first of all, to answer your question, absolutely. I, you know, I, I've been a Krabbe Maga instructor since 2001 and I've been boxing since I was 12. Um, I love combative sports. Uh, but I also understand that having the ability comes with responsibility and understanding, you know, karate teaches that it's a defensive um, martial art and and that's what it should be. It should be to save your life or someone else's and teaching a kid um, properly how to defend themselves and to inflict harm onto another person has to have a force continuum built into it and teaching kids that, you know, that's, plan set you know z and you've got to go through that the the checklist in your brain on what are my options and i think it's a great um, practice to have to teach kids how to go through that in a quick manner and that's why as a as a cop you know you have guys and girls who have you know get involved in in shootings where um, it's questionable whether it was justified because they they were never truly taught or don't have the life experiences to work off of to have ever drawn from experience of been in an, in an oh shit world. Right. And the reaction is based on 
fear and, and perception and whatever minimal training they've had. And yet, you know, my nephew is a cop in, in Kensington and he grew up in Lily White Bluebell. And if it wasn't for the fact that, that he, he and I have a great relationship and I constantly expressed to him the, his need to become trained and to visualize and work through situations because I don't want him ever to be the guy that shot an unarmed guy because he thought he had a gun. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a process that takes a lot of work. And um, if you have the time and ability to, to work with kids, to get them through, to learn that process on how to, to work through problem solving and use the appropriate level of, of effort to solve that problem. But hell yeah, I'm all for that. Did you learn a lot of that when you were um, training with um, the mar- for, training for the marshals with oh, the SEALs yeah. and the Delta Force, or is that a lot of stuff that's also taught in the in the police the police district? Uh, no, well? the police is police is, is and that's why it's you know the problems exist today because the training you get with the police is so inadequate um, for what you potentially could experience. Right, um, it's just not enough. And and if it wasn't for the fact that I had military and, and the, the training I had with the federal air marshal service, you know, and life in general. Um, you know, I've been in a couple life or death situations where I've had to make that choice and I've made the right choice every time. So I, I believe that's because of my mental preparation and, and the life experience I've had in the training that I've, I've received. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a shame too, because like you said, you never know, especially for someone who, <clears throat> not you, but you know, uh, the, the gen- you said your nephew or your cousin? My nephew. In Kensington? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in an area like that, and for anybody who's listening, they don't, you know, they don't know who Kensington is or, or what Kensington is in uh, the, the Philadelphia area. It's, it's not the best. Let's put it that way. It's yeah. not the best. Um, so uh, I grew up not too far from there. So I, I know the area and I actually worked uh, down there when I got out of college. Um, so, you don't know, like you said, the situation that you could be walking into, you know, and really nobody knows anything. You know, people ask me, uh, you know, why, why do I carry a gun? People ask me, why do I carry a blade? People ask me, well, why, why do you, why do you do jujitsu? You're 36 years old. Why do you do jujitsu? And so you just, one, because I like it. And two, uh, you just really never know what's going to happen. You know, we, we didn't have, the talks of, of active shooters when I was in grade school and high school, we didn't have <laughs> lockdown drills back then, but we do now, you know, my son is seven years old and they have drills that they go through at their school. And, and, you know, cause you're in the district as well. So we didn't have those kinds of talks. So you know what, you don't have the privilege of walking out your door and knowing exactly what's going to happen every single time and being prepared and just having that edge that could save your life, somebody else's life, isn't it worth it? Isn't it worth doing something like that? Plus you should have fun along the way because it is fun. And in most of those things and all that kind of training that you were doing with the SEALs and the Delta, I'm sure you were getting a pretty good ass workout out of it too, right? So you're making yourself stronger mentally, physically, you're learning a skill that could save your life, somebody else's life, et cetera. You're having fun at the same time and you're just, you know, just becoming a a better person. And um, in a world that we're living today, I, I don't think that that's a bad thing. You know, no, I agree. Um, so it's for me, it's just, it's one of those things where, um, you know, my, I'll give you an example. My son wants to be uh, special forces kill terrorists. That's what he wants to do. He's 17 years old. If it was up to him, even less than in the military. Special forces, what? 
and, and kill terrorists. Like that's all he wants to do with his life. That's his, kill terrorists. been his dream since he was a kid um, is to go into the military and follow in my footsteps and do all that kind of stuff, which is great. But I also know that my son is a late bloomer emotionally and, and maturing as far as his emotional maturity. Um, and I know that I was as well. And if, you know, I, I was lucky enough that when I enlisted in the army, there was no war. We weren't in conflict. It wasn't until, you know, two years later when I went to the Gulf War that um, I actually had to go into, into a conflict zone. But today's kid, since 2001, there hasn't been a year that we're not in conflict. So every kid is potentially going into harm's way. And where you're at maturity-wise and where you're at in understanding um, the realities of life and the complexities of life and the responsibility of actions at that level is, has a lot to do with your maturity level. And I know my son is not ready for that. So I'm, I'm making him go to college and go ROTC because I need him to have that four-year window of opportunity to learn and grow and become a better leader and a better, uh, more prepared soldier. And I also want him to lead men and not have to be the one following. And that's my role as a father is to make sure he's prepared. I've trained him in, in self-defense and Krav Maga and, and boxing and, and he has those skills and, and, and we work daily on understanding when in, in the most appropriate manner by which those get used if, if necessary. And I think part of the responsibility of whether it's a, um, a, a father or, or a mother or a mentor or someone who's you know, training kids as a personal trainer or in martial arts or whatever is understanding the totality of a, of a child's life and where where they fit in that that equation of of helping them grow and become a better person Mm -hmm. and simply giving somebody skill sets without the understanding the other areas of the life and where they're at in their advancement mature wise is is probably um a little bit reckless in that you you're just giving somebody it's like handing somebody a gun and, and a permit and saying you can now carry a gun and never having any type of Training don't, and understanding. Don't get me started right. on that. So, but it's, <laughs> and I'm a pro gun guy, but I am not a pro gun guy for people that have zero idea of when to deploy it and when the proper timing and situation is and, and how to do it safely without shooting themselves in the thigh or, you well, know. Well, that's like, what I mean. That's what yeah. I mean. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm the same way. You know, you have to have some kind of training, if you, especially if you're going to, you know, carry on. You just want to buy a gun, you want to go to the shooting range. I'm, and of course, you still need to know, you know, how to handle it and not, sweep the range you know, and everybody right. else on it. Um, but, but if you're going to carry on a daily basis, absolutely. I mean, it, it should be mandatory. Yep. And, and before you're able to get that, that card that you carry in your wallet, you should have, you should have to show up with a certification of a class that you completed and not just some, you know, typical you know, gun safety class. I mean, like an actual tactical course yep. that someone facilitates and yeah, I agree. Well, Matt, this was awesome. I can't let you go yet because I have 10 questions for you. Right. Uh, as, as you know, with every show, we end with 10 questions inspired by James Lipton and Bernard Pivot. So you ready to go? Yeah, let's get it. Who is your hero? My mother. What excites you? Helping kids. What turns you off? Uh... Wow, there's so many things to choose from. <laughs> um, I'm going to say the thing that turns me off the most is um, fake people. Yeah, that's a good one. What is your favorite sound? Mm. I love you. 
What is your least favorite sound? When I hear my wife say, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> Using that full name. Yeah. What is your favorite quote or saying? Hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. I like that. In a couple words, what should a dad be? Number one, uh, I'll use three. A dad is a leader. A dad is a provider. And a dad is a constant source of love for their child. And in a couple words, what should a dad not be? Oh, wow. So many of those. Um, A dad should not be, um, he should not take his own, like project himself and his own shortcomings onto his children. Mm -hmm. If you could try any other profession, what would it be? Trash truck guy in the back getting the trash cans and put them in the back of the trash truck. I'd wanted to do that my entire life. And that was on my bucket list. Imagine really? like you know, my entire life. I've always been admired by the fact that somebody gets to ride on the back of a trash truck, holding onto standing on a little, little ledge and holding onto a piece of metal and just jumps on and off the trash truck and yells, go to the driver every time they're ready to go to the next house. I always wanted to do that. Hey, it might not still be too late. You just tell them you want to volunteer one day. That's it. I'm doing it. Don't let a police officer do that. Sure. Say, if you don't do it, I'll lock you up. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, what would you like to be remembered for? Oh, man. So I always, you know, we talked about my brother's funeral and how all those people showed up. I want to make sure that when I die, there's a room full of people who are willing to say that I was a good man and made an impact in their life. That's really all I want. You know, that, and I'll give you this one last little bit. I, I did a, a, a talk, a speech, whatever you want to call it, at a, a training, an annual training conference for the sales and marketing company. And we had this back and forth dialogue amongst each other. And, and the CEO of the company said he had heard that you die twice. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, first time is when you take your last breath. And the second time is when your name is spoken for the last time. And I don't ever want my name to never not be spoken. Hmm. Wow. Never heard that. Yeah, that's the first I'd heard it, but it, it was so true. Like your legacy is is how you'll be remembered. Mm-hmm. And what you do with your life is is ultimately how well remembered you will be. And you know, we only get one shot. And I tell my daughter she's a college swimmer. I said, you know, you get four years to swim in college. You can go and just be a member of the team and and I said, or you can go out and be the greatest to ever do it or anything in between. And it all comes down to talent, effort, and your commitment to the the sport. And my daughter's going to graduate Bloomsburg University this year as the single greatest female swimmer in the history of that school program. That's 160 years. And I said, you went out and your legacy will forever be on a wall in the Hall of Fame at Bloomsburg University. I said, that's epic. That is. That's amazing. And you have a choice in that. It's all about your intentions and your purpose. Wow. What a great way to end an episode. It was That's a blast. Awesome. Yeah. I, I had a great time. Thank you so much uh, for coming on. To let everybody know 
that's listening, uh, where they can find out more about you, what you're doing, uh, definitely let them know about your podcast. Yeah. So, uh, is my website where I have, uh, everything about me, my book speaking. Um, there's a section on there for the podcast. The podcast is called two dates and a dash. Um, the name is derived from the poem called the dash that I first heard, um, when I was working as Tim Tebow's bodyguard and, uh, he had prefaced it a lot and he said, your life's made up of two dates and a dash. Um, what you do with the dash matters, the date you're born, the date you die. And uh, it always resonated with me. So that's why I named the podcast two dates in the dash. Um, my company max out and go to maxoutstudio.com to learn more about the gym and E4 strength, which is our, um, line of patented equipment that we own. Um, if anybody owns a gym and wants to buy a piece of equipment, go to e4strength.com. Yeah. I've actually used that piece of equipment and it is absolutely crazy. Um, it's in, in a nutshell, just tell everybody really quick what it is about the eccentric, you know, load. Yep. So your body can hold and lower more weight than it can lift. Um, it's designed for that. Um, the way you build muscle effectively is to be able to hold and lower more weight under controlled time and tension in order to force stretch the muscle fibers and create tears and then allow it to grow back. So, it's been a uh, bugaboo in the strength and conditioning world on how to do that efficiently and effectively without causing connective tissue damage within your joints. We have a piece of equipment that allows us to um, overload the body with an eccentric force, which is a lowering of a heavier weight. And then our device actually offloads weight so you can lift it easier. So if, for example, you could put three, 315 pounds on a barbell, lower 315 pounds and lift up 135 if you wanted to. Yeah. Um, so it allows us to, maximize the value of the eccentric load um, on the human body, creating more muscle fiber tears, which creates more stronger, more powerful muscles. Yeah. And and for anybody that's like, how the hell is it offloaded? Uh, it's, it's electronically driven. You have a cable attached to the bar that you're using. So if you're doing squats, there's a cable on the bar and all of a sudden, as soon as you get to a certain depth, it pulls the, you know, it, it, it lightens it. And a pulley kicks in, and then it basically pulls, helps you pull the, the push weight the up. weight back up. It's absolutely amazing. I've used it. It's it's crazy. So definitely check out that e4strength.com, mattkubler.com, uh, c-u-b-b-l-e-r. I'll have all the links in the show notes, but just in case you wanted to rush over there right now and uh, and check it out, and then two dates in the Dash podcast again, all be in the show notes. So uh, please go check out what Matt's doing, his story. Uh, the book can be purchased on Amazon, right? A Brother's yep. Love. Um, so. This was great. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you taking uh, all, all this time. I know we went a little over the what we said we were going to, but um, I, I'm glad you got an opportunity to kind of put it all out there for us. I appreciate it, brother. Anytime I get a chance to share, I'm thankful and I appreciate you. Absolutely. Thank you. Have a good one. Take care. Hey, guys. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Warrior Dads podcast. If you like this podcast and want to support it, please subscribe, leave comments, and share it with someone you think would benefit from listening as well. Thanks again, and keep on being a warrior dad.